Hello, everybody, and welcome to Right Cared Baptist. Today, Henry and I are going to be speaking to two addiction medicine specialists about alcohol use disorder and alcohol addiction. Welcome to the program, Dr. David Stern and Dr. Sean Hamm. Can you tell us a little bit about yourselves? Uh, so, uh, as you said, my name's Sean Hamm. I'm an addiction medicine specialist. Um, I did, I'm academically trained, did the addiction medicine specialty. I'm the program director for a Baptist addiction medicine program. I'm Dr. Dave Stern, and uh, Sean and I are co-founders of IAC Associates, a, an addiction medicine uh, that's substance use and alcohol use disorder outpatient clinic. Um, and we're fortunate to have established a center of excellence in addiction medicine with um, right. Baptist Memorial Healthcare. And um, in the course of that, uh, working with Henry and, uh, and you, Jake, is one of the things we do um, that's a pleasure. But we handle in our practice from opioids to stimulants to alcohol. And as we were talking before um, Henry hit the record button, there's nothing more important to consider than alcohol. If we consider that 14 to 18 million Americans have a level of alcohol dependency and alcohol use disorder. So we think that uh, Jake and Henry really picked very right for starting this out. That's right. 80, I think it's 88,000 people die from alcohol-related deaths per year. Um, I also think there's like 50% of liver disease is related to alcohol use. And I guess the last statistic to start with, if you just think a third, a third, a third, um, a third of the patients that are treated for alcoholism will recover and be fine on the a third of them won't make any difference, and a third that aren't treated will go on and have terrible complications. So there really is the possibility of changing a person's trajectory, and we think that this discussion is very apropos since we know a lot of folks with addictions and alcoholism are in the 20 to 50 range, and there's a lot of life, very functional life, that can be um, restored and allow the person to function to their um, greatest capacity. So again, we think it's a very relevant discussion. Oh, and for sure, especially during the pandemic with all the reports about increased alcohol use during this time period in order to cope with the anxiety, uh, certainly a very important topic uh, for our audience right now. One thing, Jake, in that context, the um, if we think of the overdoses and the relapses in relation to the COVID, there was a spike in May and June, and it went down when people thought the epidemic was going away, and it's actually... There's a second spike now, which will include relapses, overdoses with alcoholism, too. And it's the idea that it's looking like there's a second wave and people are not seeing the light as easily at the end of the tunnel. So, again, just what you said, the way of coping with the stress, um, if it's self-medication, this is an issue. But sorry to interrupt you, Jake. Oh, no, no, no. I was just going to say, Henry, do you have any welcoming words for the audience? No, and I think it goes without saying, Jake, that we, we've got two pros uh, that will have a great opportunity today to, to talk about what is uh, what is a, has been a struggle for us uh, as, as a society uh, for, for, for years. Uh, and we are grateful to have uh, uh, these two gentlemen bring to our organization, our system, this very targeted and focused work around substance use and misuse. And it's a real, it's a, uh, I'm grateful to have them uh, uh, come to us today and really share their knowledge around how do you manage, in particular, the alcohol uh, misuse. Um, uh, so so uh, Dr. Ham uh, and Stern, we're grateful to have you guys join us today. Look forward to talking with you. Jake, what do you have in store for us? Well, today we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, we are actually going to go through a couple of case presentations. And, and the case is actually going to be 
uh, a patient of mine from a long period of time ago uh, that I saw both in clinic and in the hospital and just had a really difficult time managing. And so I would love to get their feedback on the outpatient and inpatient management of this uh, this uh, gentleman. So, uh, so Jake, Jake, this is our chance to stump the pros. So don't go easy on them. Right? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. Uh, if you're all ready, let's go ahead and dive in. So you are working in an ambulatory clinic. You have a 57-year-old male with a history of high blood pressure, peripheral neuropathy, who presents to you for routine follow-up. He has a history of alcohol dependence and has tried to quit unsuccessfully on multiple occasions. Since you last saw him, he was discharged from the hospital after admission for alcohol withdrawal and for injuries sustained after a fall due to alcohol intoxication. He was treated with Ativan and Alibrium Taper. He completed the taper early last week and has been alcohol-free since. His past medical history is significant for high blood pressure, alcohol dependence, peripheral neuropathy, and depression. He takes lisinopril, gabapentin, and wellbutrin. He previously drank about a 12-pack of beer every night with heavier use on the weekends. He is currently employed as an accountant, but has been missing work due to his hospitalizations. He has a family history of high, uh, high blood pressure and alcoholism. So my question to you, gentlemen, is how would you respond to this patient that showed up to your clinic? What What is your general approach to this case? If this patient presented to our clinic, a lot of times they already understand and know that they have a problem, right? Um, I would assume this gentleman kind of understands that as well since he was, was hospitalized and, and detoxed, right? Um, I usually kind of start the discussion kind of um, uh, seeing how motivated they are, you, you know, to try to... Uh, completely stop drinking. I think a lot of times um, patients uh, with uh, alcohol use disorder, they recognize they have a problem, but they think they can still just drink a little as opposed to drink, you know, drinking the way they were before. So there's definitely a lot of counseling kind of to begin with. Um, uh, we also spend a lot of time discussing, uh, you know, medications that are FDA approved for alcohol use disorder. Um, I think it's important to add that there's three of them, uh, or I guess technically four, and I'll go through them if you'd like. Um, and they're very under-prescribed medications. Um, and again, just like with all um, chronic relapsing disorders, the best outcomes are usually patients that are placed on medications plus behavioral changes uh, that equal kind of the best outcomes, okay? Um, I mean, right now we'll kind of talk about medications, but but I just don't want anyone to forget that that the behavioral changes and the counseling and kind of you know are are obviously extremely important as well. So I just want to say in that regard, when we think about patients that have alcoholism or other substance use disorders, um, when you come to our clinic, it basically is a change of life you're considering. It could be that your buddies that you've been you know, right. dealing with people that you've been living with. It's a whole change in how your lifestyle is going to be. And it's sort of um, my I'm David Stern It's sort of David Stern minus alcohol. That could mean different activities on many things. So it's a major life change. And Sean and I find that patients that come to the clinic um, have a hard time, especially at the outset. Are they really committed to this? And it only works when they want to do it. And having said that, the medicines aren't perfect but the medicines are pretty good. But folks, as Sean has emphasized, and really important to say that, if you don't have 
the behavioral component along with the medicine, the transactional approach to this, which is you give me money and I give you a prescription, it really doesn't work on these disorders. It has to be this more holistic approach um, that Sean has referred to. And very often that will also include sober housing as well, which is in short supply, but again, could serve to be a requirement for some people to change their environment. So it's not so much loaded with cues that suggest they should go on with That's use. Right. Yeah, and, that, and sorry, and, and I think that kind of just brings up a good point. That's it's really difficult because sometimes you know not only do people drink, you know, because they're stressed or depressed or they're anxious, right? A lot of people also drink when they're celebrating something, a birthday or a promotion, and so it becomes very difficult when they're faced with uh, you know the challenge of not having to drink or having to stop completely. So it's kind of, I mean, yeah. it's but, difficult, it's but, a big but, change. But Sean, let, we'll describe to you the medicines that do exist. They're not perfect, but they work pretty well. And some of the patients that take them say, you know, when I take these medicines, I can more rationally make a choice. Do I really want to drink? You know, and the cravings and stuff go away. But let me let yeah. Sean's really an expert in this. Well, yeah, talk well, well, before we get to the treatments, can you just comment on, is there anything else from the history or physical or lab that you're looking for in this patient before you dive into therapies? Um, anything else you need to know from his um, history? Um, let's see. So you say he was, A, you know, he was drinking how much? You said a 12 pack uh, a day. Uh, for how many years? Oh, I didn't say, but let's but, say it's been 20. So, so that matters. It, so it has to do, you know, um, uh, you know, you'd look for things for family history of alcohol use disorder kind of increases the risk. Uh, the, the amount, uh, and I think we're okay. You know, uh, the amount matters. Um, uh, let's see, you know, are there any other kind of substances that he's also on? I, you know, it's the typical stuff. I'd want to see if he's on what medications he's on. Uh, you know, imagine we'd also have the hospital labs. You would look at the normal uh, labs and stuff. Um, so, again, the idea of co-occurring disorders, be them mental health disorders or hepatic insufficiency, we'd especially be concerned with just in terms of which are the drugs one's going to use. And then all the complications of alcoholism. We want to get a broader picture so that we're sure that the drugs that we're prescribing in no way are exacerbating the situation. They're drugs that will be helpful. Well, right, that we're not covering up something as well. You, you, you know. all right, so, so let me ask you a question, because you, you bring up a really a good point. And looking through this particular case, uh, as has been presented, uh, this person's on Wellbutrin. And among the neurotransmitter meds, you know, they, they, they have effects on different, different neurotransmitters. This has an effect on norepinephrine. Correct. And norepinephrine can be an accelerant. Correct. So, and if, if we're saying that perhaps this person perhaps is self-medicating and norepinephrine is an accelerant, which can induce a hypomanic-like behavior, does this in any way affect your, as you look through his medication history, oh. does this in any way lend to some of your thinking around how you would approach this man, especially with the family history? Oh, no, 100%. I mean, Wellbutrin obviously increases dopamine, norepinephrine, and acetylcholine. And so, so um, uh, it also, you know, it what decreases your seizure threshold. So you're at risk for actually seizures. It's also, mm -hmm. as you know, a mild stimulant. And of course, mild stimulants and alcohol is also a very bad combination. Uh, puts you at risk for, you know, it, it, it accelerates all these things. 
So no, I think that uh, well, butrin is not probably the best choice, you know, for for this patient. You know, um, now that said, I've definitely uh, a lot of times with patients who have substance use disorder, we use things like well, butrin effects or Prestique because they they also increase that dopamine, right? Uh, along with other neurotransmitters, so that's where they can also be helpful. So you do have to use your kind of clinical judgment judgment and be mindful. But in this case, when someone's coming out of a hospital uh, after having detoxed, it would be, a, it, it is a concern. So you're, you're right. So actually one thing Sean mentioned, the partial agonist properties of it with regard to um, blocking the transporters, as Henry said, um, that's important because the most effective drugs in the field of addiction and alcoholism are generally partial agonists rather than straight blockers. And um, an important thing to keep in mind, though we'll talk about naltrexone in a moment, that's a pure antagonist. <laughs> yeah, so I, I guess this is probably a good time to, to delve into those treatments. You mentioned there were three or four approved drugs for alcohol use disorder. Correct. So there's, I mean, so the first one is naltrexone. Okay, so naltrexone is FDA approved for alcohol use disorder, opiate use disorder. Um, and I always mention this, but because I think it's kind of, it really kind of, it's, uh, um, it's important to know that it's in a drug called Contrave. Uh, Contrave is, a, is a, for binge eating. It's a combination medication of naltrexone plus Welbutrin, okay? Uh, which again, if you think about it, it makes sense that, you know, a, someone who's binge eating, you know, is they have an addiction. It's it's um, it's a dysfunctional way of kind of dealing or coping with things. Right. And so the pharmaceutical companies are clever. They're giving them a mild stimulant, which decreases your appetite. They're also it's also an antidepressant makes them feel better. Right. And then they're using naltrexone to uh, so naltrexone, it blocks um, when you. So when you drink alcohol or, or you know, you release uh, dopamine, okay? Dopamine kind of reinforces uh, behaviors. Um, the naltrexone blocks dopamine from interacting with the receptor. So the idea is that that behavior doesn't get reinforced, okay? So so there's no satiety, there's there's no satisfaction from doing that behavior. Does does that did I explain that okay? Or um... so it's an interesting kind of hijacking. So the idea is that the alcohol actually stimulates endogenous endorphins. The endorphins stimulate the mu opioid receptor, and naltrexone is an antagonist of the mu opioid receptor. So you kind of the hijacking of the systems that alcohol right. has done. Naltrexone's a little bit throwing a, a a wrench into those gears, as Sean has said. And so the pleasure principle that's going to go from the mu opioid receptor and the endorphin, which is the natural ligand, to turn on the dopamine, suddenly that's been turned off. And so there's a different kind of decision making the person is, is faced with at that point. That's kind of the crooks of how it works. It's also... Um... I would say clinically, uh, 50% of the patients we start that on, about you know half of them, after putting them on it, a normal dose is like 50 milligrams a day. Uh, in a week, they come back, and it actually helps with their cravings as well. So I have no cravings whatsoever. So half of them kind of get pretty lucky. Um, it's it comes in obviously the PO form. Uh, by mouth, but there's also the injectable form, which is called Vivitrol. So that's kind of what sometimes people say there's four medications for alcohol use disorder, but it's really just the same. It's the same drug. And, and what's the data on relapsing for patients that are on it? 
For alcohol, it's actually pretty good. It's, it's if pretty it's effective. good. Yeah. Um, it's not so great for opioids. It still works, but it's just not, it's more effective, I found, with, with alcohol. So it's interesting because the endogenous opioid system is really a part of our bodies. You know, that's how we were designed to have endorphins and encephalins and whatnot. So on the one hand, buprenorphine therapy, which is an opioid replacement therapy, therapy continuously stimulates the mu opioid receptor, although it's a partial agonist. Now you have something that's blocking it, including from the natural ligand. So this, um, you know, if we think in terms of synaptic plasticity, these are experiments, I think, that are going on in people that are taking these drugs. And the neuronal circuitry um, is certainly changing. But there's um, evidence from large studies. One is called the combined study, and there are other ones that show that naltrexone is definitely more effective than placebo, um, and naltrexone plus um, behavioral therapies is more effective even than that in preventing drinking. But all of these are statistical things between 30 and 40%. None of them are between 60 and 90%. They're they're not in that range, as Sean has said. Yeah, not like that. So naltrexone and behavioral therapy, you would say, would probably be the first line for alcohol use disorder? I, I definitely would. I definitely would. And and what I'll do as well, a lot of times, uh, is use another drug possibly. So I always, usually I always start naltrexone first unless, so the other drug's called acamprosate or Campril. Okay. So um, kind of its function is to help with the anxiety portions kind of that are associated with drinking. Okay. So you have a GABAminergic system, neurotransmitter system. It deals with with um, uh, keeping us calm, and that becomes, you know, uh, uh, dysfunctional with alcohol, basically. And so acamprosate is believed to help upregulate that system and kind of stabilize patients. So it really is there. I always tell, you know, when I'm speaking with patients, I always tell them, you know, the skinny is that the acamprosate tries uh, to help people from taking the first drink. So it calms them down so they're not they they won't pour the drink. Whereas now Trexone is there to try to, if they do drink on it, it it doesn't turn a slip into a full-blown relapse. Okay. Um, that's kind of how I think of it. Um, uh, so a campersade is actually quite effective. Um, again, I don't know the percentages, sure. but I use it quite a bit actually off-label. Uh, for people who are anxious and and it tends to work. I think the only problem with it is, you know, it's it comes in 333 uh, milligrams and it's supposed to be two tabs three times a day, which is is it's quite a lot. And uh, I've since modified how I prescribe it. And so a lot of times we'll just start like, you know, let's just start with twice a day or three, you know, three times a day as opposed to that. And then that Tends, you know, that again, I've got patients who take two and they swear by it. I have others that are on the max dose and they swear by it. Um, it's renally excreted, so it's, you don't have to worry about liver function. Uh, often, I, it would be nice, you know, uh, it, yeah. And you could start it in the hospital and not have to, you know, right when someone comes in and not have to worry about their, you know, provide their kidneys or, you know, worry about the liver or anything. So Sean referred to a little bit of the biology that is useful in this outpatient case and as well as in the inpatient case, and it's alcohol's ability to stimulate the GABAergic system, which is the inhibitory system, 
and to suppress the glutamate system, which is the excitatory system. And a lot of what we're talking about with these medicines is to try to shift this balance of the inhibitory and the excitatory systems. Now, of course, this is a big reduction in really what the the electrical you know connections, the synaptic biology is, but it's worth keeping in mind because these drugs are in the end trying to reset these two excitatory and inhibitory pathways so that we can help the patient achieve balance more easily. And when we talk about the detox in a moment, there's an acute event when you take the alcohol away that suddenly there's a tremendous stimulation of the glutamate excitatory pathway. And that's something that's very important to counter when we talk about the um, treating of the patient that's in acute detox. Yeah, you bring up a really fascinating point. It, 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 so so you're trying to reprogram the way that the brain is is responding. It, does there come a time when when the you, you reprogram the whole brain in which its which its pathways are responding that you feel as if you can start backing away on these medicines or is once we put you on the medicines is this a a long term therapy or once you reprogram what a your- good question Henry <laughs> so yeah I mean it can be both right so some patients are on it long term uh, but I've also had plenty of patients that can come off of it once they're they've really regained this the you know all the other aspects in their life you, you know uh, that we tend to decrease and they they're able to use less and less I have patients now that um, uh, you know for example they'll take naltrexone um, when the holidays are coming up right so when family mm-hmm. members are coming at Thanksgiving and you know then they'll just put themselves to, you know, start taking a 50 milligram tab right before the, and then stop just to give them a little bit protection over the holidays. But for the most part, yes, you're right. It, they can get off of it. You, you show that's fascinating because that, uh, that's not unlike some of the thinking behind attention deficit disorders uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in children, young adults. Once they grow out of it, they then are out until they kind of hit a wall again and you will see them titrate back in. That's that's fascinating physiologic uh, yeah. thinking around around this whole disease. Well, to um, me, Henry, your question brings up a really important issue, which is we talk about how the brain is reprogrammed, be it by alcohol or by some of the drugs, and then we treat it and we stop. And the question is, is there a correction? Does it go back to what it was before? Does it go back to another steady to a different steady state? And how is it not just statistically in a particular patient? And very often we do not know the answer to that question. So I, I just think you're, that's a very important question to look into and to keep in mind. And I think of that all the time because I never know in a particular patient, where are we on that? Is it a person that really is going to need it forever or is it a more limited scenario? So, all right, Sean. So, so you had you had this this accountant. You had you're working with him. He's doing great. And uh, oh, by the way, something changed. So let's take let's take this case now. We're in the ED. Let me let me just pose the case to you. So it's the same patient, okay? Okay. And now he's in the emergency department after relapsing. You thought you had him. You'd lost him to follow up. You knew there was potentially a problem. You lost him to follow up. And now he's relapsed, started drinking again. He went to a family wedding and relapsed after deciding to have a drink to celebrate. He's been drinking rather steadily for the last two weeks. Uh, and now he's in the ED. Uh, he reports nervousness, shakiness. His blood pressure is slightly elevated, but 
The remainder of his vitals and the ED appear to be normal. Uh, he reports having had a seizure. Uh, so now you're called in to, to consult on this gentleman in the ED who's back binging, apparently, and uh, is uh, had a, a seizure, whether it's alcohol-induced or medication-induced, et cetera. How do you manage this? You know, with him, you do have to worry about him going to alcohol withdrawal or DTs, right? Because he, we know from his history before that he ha- he had been detoxed in the hospital and placed on, you know, long-acting benzodiazepines with short-acting kind of PRN available, right? Um, uh, so he's he's probably he's definitely at an increased risk than someone who had that's not happened to. Um, let's see, you know, he's you. You need to look at the the rest of his kind of symptoms. If his if he's got autonomic kind of instability, if his heart rates up and blood pressure, if he's is he tremulous. In this scenario, a lot of times the safest approach would be to admit him to the hospital um, and at least to you know observe him um, for you know one or two days before letting him go because he's at an increased risk. So maybe we should just mention that if you think of the different drugs, addictive drugs, alcohol and benzodiazepines have potentially life-threatening withdrawal syndromes. And they're things that really do require careful monitoring and pharmacologic um, uh, use of various pharmacologic agents. Whereas a lot of other things like marijuana, um, stimulants, there can be psychoses and severe syndromes, but it's the not, not the same kind of physiologic dependence. Um, even with opiates. So what Sean is saying is that once you see the seizure, you see the co-occurring, potentially co-occurring disorders and a long history of heavy drinking, this could be a situation really that could not be managed at home and in fact is associated with morbidity and mortality. And we'll let Sean expand no, on that. Right. And so that's what you're, that's exactly right. That's what you're, 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 you're worried about. So you'd have to, you'd still be, the safest approach would be to admit the patient. Um, so we'd like to talk about the, the real, the modern approach to treating this, maybe um, for Henry's benefit, I'm going to remind him of the old approach of this. So when I started as a house officer, which Henry, I hate to admit it, but it was 1981 in New York City on the wards at Columbia. First, we were pushing Librium every few minutes to check there was the right amount of sedation without making it so the patient was too sedated and stopped breathing. And I, as an intern that had just started off, the patient was not at all satisfied. And he said, Doc, would you do me a favor? And I said, yeah, what would you like? And he said, just open that drawer by the side of the bed. And he, I opened it. And of course, there was a hip flask. He said, let me just take a sip of that. And he took a big drink and he said, Doc, now you can do anything you want with that stuff in that syringe. So, Henry, does that bring back any memories for you? 79, house officer. Yes, sir. <laughs> Very much so. So now we're going to let Sean talk about what's the real, the right way to manage well, these no, things. No, so, <laughs> so here's what I was trying to get at. A lot of times the safest thing to do, you know, is you put a patient like this on a, a long acting benzodiazepine. Okay. So you are trying to protect them from these symptoms uh, getting worse, which can lead to DTs and ICU and morbidity and mortality. And so that's what you're worried about. There are some um, literature that says you can do these things outpatient, but I'm here to tell you that's a pretty risky move. I've, um, usually, if, if you believe somebody uh, is at risk for these things, you're probably better off just admit them to the hospital or, or, or do a detox at, in some setting where they can be kind of observed and monitored. 
Um, I think so, so really what I want Sean to describe to you is something that we would like to become part of the culture at Baptist, which is a symptom-driven approach to this that really follows a particular kind of assessment that will talk about to you, and then that marries that to an algorithm as to the use of be it benzodiazepines or other pharmacologic agents. One more thing, and I did not mention this earlier, but I do want to mention it. Uh, and what puts this guy also at risk, there's something called kindling. I don't know if you've heard of that before, but because when someone detoxes from alcohol and they're actually in uh, an, you know, a setting like a hospital and you've given them benzodiazepines and you've, you've monitored them over uh, you know, the three to four days, right? Every time they relapse and then you go through that again, um, that is said to increase their risk of actually you know, um, worsening kind of withdrawal symptoms. So that should also be kind of mentioned, right? Um, when you do admit them to the hospital, there's, uh, there's, there are different scenarios, right, that people use. Um, one in particular is called the CWA, which is a Clinical Institute Withdrawal Assessment. It's, uh, it's probably the most uh, common and widely used way of, of ensure it's, a, it's kind of like a way of assessing patients um, to try to figure out how much medication they may require or not require or where in the hospital um, would be the best place for them to be, whether that's on the floor or maybe in an ICU. Um, and that's, again, that's called the Clinical Institute Withdrawal Assessment. Um, typically what happens a lot of times is you would manage these patients by putting that if they're so the score is like zero to eight, for example, anything below eight is pretty much asymptomatic or absent, very minimal symptoms. But then eight to 15, you know, you're, you're definitely more worried and you've probably started a long acting benzodiazepine with maybe some PRN uh, uh, Ativan, provided their liver function and everything is, is, is fine. And they're, you, again, you still have to use your clinical judgment and look at other medications and stuff that they're on, okay? Um, but anything above 15, usually, um, and, and sometimes even 12, you really need, if a patient is at a score like that, then they probably would merit a transfer to the ICU for even closer monitoring. I was just going to say, you're worried about them really having a seizure with it being that high? Uh, yes, or you're worried about them going into what's called the actual DTs. You know, you have yeah. withdrawals, but DTs have the morbidity and mortality, and that's what everyone's concerned and worried about. And so it can really kind of sneak up on you pretty quickly. Uh, and that's when, you know, that's when you're thinking about people who are, they're hallucinating, yeah. you know, they're seeing things, they're diaphoretic, they're, they're vomiting, you know, that, the, those patients you really do worry about. And I was just going to ask, so you admitted this guy to the hospital, his, his initial CWA score is six or seven. Uh, it's been that way for maybe a day or two. At what point do you say he's out of the, I guess, the window for potentially slipping into DTs? What, at what time frame could you be comfortable with? with well, him? you're right. And so you do have to be, you have to be careful with that. It's kind of interesting. Um, uh, but typically it's usually 72 you know, you know, three to four days is usually, you know, those, their risk kind of decrease. Believe it or not, I actually have seen people at seven and 10 days actually go into to DTs. Now, those are patients, though, that, oh, you know, you find out later, you understand that they were also abusing, you know, benzodiazepines and Xanax and things like that. And so those the, but at, in the beginning, it's very hard to kind of tease that out. You're just unaware of it. 
you know. So. so so the one thing I think that if there's a take home message from this, that the modern management of a patient like this, um, which is actually completely encapsulated in Epic right now, is to find this clinical institute withdrawal from alcohol, the CIWA, C-I-W-A-A-R, and to find this score, and it can be scored by a nurse, by a house officer, by a, you know any level of physician, but a nurse as well, and that we want to have a symptom-driven approach, because the symptom-driven approach is shown to result in a shorter hospitalization. And so we're following it just as we would, let's say, a sepsis algorithm, and as the symptoms are changing, the dose, the monitoring is changing, and the dose is changing. And this is really something we think that should become part of the culture of managing patients that have um, CWA scores that are, let's say, 15 and above, especially these those that are um, that are acutely ill. But it also it also helps you um, to not over sedate somebody. I agree. I agree, Sean. And and uh, Dr. Stern and I are showing our age a little bit, but this is a much more uh, regimented, data-driven way yes. of managing the the patient who is who is uh, probably at risk for a substantial withdrawal event. Uh, whereas uh, Dr. Stern and I found ourselves uh, pushing um, benzos um, without m much evidence to support. It was mainly just, I think, by the circumstance. Yeah, frankly. Um, well. You know, maybe I could close this out because I know we're running short on time, but uh, we, we use this in residency. I was very familiar with the CEWA score, and, and that was kind of our standard of care. Yeah. Um, so my question for you both is you are getting ready to discharge this patient home. You know, he's been in the hospital three or four days. His score is not going up. It's actually going down. In the past, I had heard and seen where some would use their cumulative dose or, or how much they'd gotten per day in order to figure out how much maybe Librium they would go home with or, or some sort of taper. Is that what y'all commonly do? Is, is that a common approach or how would you manage this patient's discharge? So I'm not a huge fan of Librium. I actually, most people in the addiction world that do this use Valium. And the reason why is because Valium has a faster onset, even though it's longer acting. I think with Librium, especially when you first start, you can, it's like you, you're chasing like the, the patient's tanking. And so it takes a day or so many doses for the Librium to kind of reach its peak. And by that point, that CWA or that score could have actually gotten worse. And you're just trying to, you're just trying to manage those symptoms. And so what I what I've found is Valium is is a lot faster and allows you to kind of see where the patient's at quicker. And they do quite well. Um, usually typically, I, I don't believe in sending people home that have an alcohol use disorder with benzodiazepine. I think that in my personal experience, you know, and regardless of what the book says, even if they have a loved one with them that is trustworthy, that that you run the risk of that patient drinking on top of taking this respiratory depressant this sedative. Yeah. And so, and and and, um, and so, no, I don't do that. If the person's ready for discharge and they already have been loaded and they've they've been on you know whatever you know, uh, you know, uh, either Librium or Valium for the past two or three days, it's going to taper itself. It's, it's going to, it's going to be fine. Um, and so, no, I never discharge them with, with benzos. What would you send them out on? Would you go ahead and start some of those medications that we were using I, I, in clinic? I, I sure would. Uh, so you really would, could send them out uh, with a prescription for a campersate, okay, which then would also help with their anxiety, but I'll use 
a camper say, or if they're complaining of anxiety, we'll start the abuse, you know, abuse bar, abuse barone, um, uh, which again, it's a, it is FDA approved for anxiety. Um, I think the, you know, a lot of times in the past I would start it, the person would come back and be like, Hey, that doesn't work. And I would automatically switch them to something else. And I got to reading more and more about it. I mean, it comes in 7.5, 10, 15, and 30 milligrams. And the max dose is 60 milligrams. And so now my approach is to actually give it a good college try. And I've got more people on 15 milligrams, two or three times a day. And they really come back and go, wow, that really works. So there's medications like that, that I, uh, that I find are very helpful. Um, uh, the literature, you know, again, there's, there's, we've done all sorts of stuff. There's, um, um, Tegretol, but I wouldn't start those at, at discharge. I would, I would do that. In, I would do that in my own personal That's clinic and decide. Now, Trexones, yeah, you can do yep. that Trexone providing the, the patient doesn't have any opioids in their system. So you can't give them now Trexone in a hospital setting if they've received any sort of opioids whatsoever. Yeah, they have to be off of any opioids for seven to 10 days. Um, and you, again, you have to look at the liver function and stuff. So, um, but definitely, yeah, a camper say. Um, yeah. any antidepressants that you feel what's your what's your time or right, let's say let's say we've we've managed this person well you've got them on uh one or two of the optimal meds and it looks like this person is is actually doing very well what's your what's your time to follow up um i usually like to see them as as quickly as possible after discharge, right? Mm -hmm. So definitely I wouldn't go longer than a week. I mean, there's still high risk. What happens a lot of times you'll detox the, the patient, but then they go right back to the same environment, you, you okay. know, uh, without any sort of protection. It's almost, you know how patients, when you admit them to the hospital and for pneumonia, you're like, hey, women's you smoke? And they're like, nope. And you're like, when did you quit? And they're like, uh, two days ago, right? <laughs> when they got admitted, they're never going to smoke again. But they all smoke, you know, after their, and I, I think you see that a lot with alcohol. People are on benzos, they're, they're, they feel confident, they're in a controlled setting. But then when they get home, the, all those risk factors that were there before they came in, are, you know, kind of come flooding back. And so they, it, it, yeah, so that's why I kind of stress it's more important that they come back sooner or, or follow up with us a lot, yeah, as, you know, quickly as possible. Well, thank you both. That was uh, really helpful. I, I certainly learned a lot and hopefully our audience did as well. Um, any final comments or, or closing thoughts from you guys? Yeah. Like to just say that Henry invited us, and this can be a preview of coming attractions. Dr. Ham and uh, some of his fellows will be giving a grand rounds. I think it's in February, and we'll be on this subject because we're very interested in having the culture at Baptist advance so that it's this more modern approach, at least more modern than Henry and I were aware of in training. And thank you all for listening to another episode of Right Care at Baptist. Remember, if you go to the bottom of the podcast episode in the show notes, you can find the link to the CME um, survey so you can get your credit. And we'd also like to give another shout out to Hank Sullivan for our intro and exit music. Thank you, Hank. <laughs>